the clothing industry, a worldwide enterprise worth trillions. Here's a little perspective. The U.S. spends more, and I mean a lot more, on clothing in one year than our government spends on education, energy, scientific funding, and it even surpasses food and agriculture. In fact, so much money is spent on clothing in this country alone that just half of its revenue would be sufficient to fund every single one of the examples I just mentioned. Let that sink in for a second. Let's say you're out buying clothes. If you're like the vast majority of people, your top priorities probably revolve around the fit, the price, quality, or maybe you're just obsessing over whether purple is a good color for you. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that at all. But here's a challenge for you. Picture your wardrobe in your head. Out of all the clothes you own, how many items were made overseas versus here in the U.S.? Do you know? If your closet is like most of ours, it's dominated with imported clothes. It's just the way a lot of clothes are made available now. Imported. So, is this a problem? Now, I've pondered this many times and recently dove headfirst into researching the Chinese clothing industry a little bit. China's ability to produce goods for seemingly everyone has always impressed me, and they're very proud of their reputation in doing so. But we can't leave the unfortunate facts out. See, China is but one of several countries who's gained a long-standing notoriety for intentionally and systematically breaking child labor laws, and labor laws in general. But you know what's really crazy to me? This is pretty commonly known stuff, and yet Americans still purchase Chinese clothing like it's candy, even though those labor laws are consistently broken to this day. I mean, imagine if an American clothing manufacturing plant was caught for the same thing. That story would be everywhere, on every news outlet. Can you imagine? I can just see the headlines now. U.S. clothing company forced to close doors on charges of child slavery. Now, I know this isn't the lightest subject matter in the world, but here's my point. A key part of mastering this vague art of sustainability is gaining a strong consciousness of the livelihoods of other people and realizing that the purchasing choices we make truly do affect other people in other cultures, no matter how small an impact it may be. My guest today understands this point more than most people I've met. Bree Krodinger is the owner of Knotted Massage in Coeur d'Alene. An environmentalist and a minimalist, she's a sharp mind and is extremely passionate about making conscious buying decisions. She's done a ton of research into the clothing industry at large and has lots of eye-opening information that I think we could all benefit from. So let's continue our journey into identifying sustainability on this episode two of Sustainable Culture Podcast, Clothing. thankful that someone in the community at then this is before we really talked a lot about stuff because we we shared a class together right and uh, talked a bunch about pollution right sustainability in different ways we shared project notes you helped uh proofread a paper (laughs) yeah the cool thing is we have this tiny that i know of at at least i'm personally connected with Mm -hmm. this tiny micro community here that have people like yourself that kind of have this pet passion project of sustainable something or another right and it's 
you know, I'm interviewing these a bunch of these people right now, and it's really, really cool to see the need for it in, in Coeur d'Alene. I think it's great you're giving everyone a voice, because we don't have anything like this. So, I mean, this is awesome. I'm excited. Well, any luck. We'll get <laughs> enough shares and likes. Subliminal messaging. <laughs> um, so, first, let's talk about you. So, you have... I am sitting here, I'm not videotaping this yet, but I'm sitting here in your office. Yes. Slash Ashiatsu Massage Studio. Yes. Where you step on people. Yes, I, I walk on people for a living. <laughs> Tell no, us about I, uh, that just a bit. Um, I do a form of deep tissue. Um, it's a Eastern-Western hybrid of deep tissue where I um, walk on people. And it's a gentler form of deep tissue. You get tons more pressure without the pain. And, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, they're working muscles. Um, my bent is more towards something called your fascial system, which every muscle in your body, pretty much everything is covered in the saran wrap layer of fascia. And it's highly innervated. And if you can manipulate that, you can manipulate the body. Pretty much that's in the most condensed peanut shell I can fit it into. But, yeah, I, I love it. It gives me the freedom to do what I want to do. And How uh, long have you been? Doing um, that. I've been doing massage for about four years now and Ashiatsu for three. So obviously you went to school. Right. And you learned mm -hmm. a lot of these techniques yeah. in school. When you got educated and you're like, I, I want to start up a studio, mm -hmm. did you just do it? Or yeah, what, did. what did it involve? <laughs> uh, well, it involved a quick two-month stint as an quote-unquote independent contractor uh -huh. at a spa that was not a good fit for me. And I pretty much just said, screw it, I'm not doing this anymore. And I didn't actually learn Ashiatsu in school. I was having a ton of back pain because I'm, I'm a tiny person, you know, working on a 200 pound person is double my body weight. Right. So that for doing deep tissue was just killing me. And I'm like, I've got to do something different. So I did this as a continuing education class and I just rolled right into my own business. And I just kind of like trial by fire made it work. You just kind of figured it out as you went. I did, yeah. You seem like you're you're having a good time doing it. I yep. see your Instagram, yep. at Knotted Massage. Yep. Go follow her. <laughs> it's just cool to see so many people of a young age doing it on their own and yeah. just kind of making it happen. Yeah, I will say I, I do miss that I don't have benefits, but I think like <laughs> uh, the... What benefits? <laughs> okay, that's true. People get those? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Um, but the fact that, you know, I can make a living for myself and make my own hours and make it so that I have carved out, you know, space in my life where I can finish college and then have time to do the things that I love, like my passion projects. I mean, I have a better work-life balance and yeah. I wouldn't trade that for the world. I would take a smaller salary, you know, just yeah. to do that. So, so speaking of passion projects, yes. um, you do a couple of things that uh, I admire very much. And one of those things is... You doodling. Um, yes. <laughs> you, <laughs> right now you're working on, uh, you do a lot of like illustrations, drawings. Yeah. You do a lot of sea creatures. Yes. That I enjoy very much. Oh, um, thank you. It reminds me a lot of coloring books I used to use. You know, yeah. Coloring. Um, so you're working on a project right now. Yeah. Are you allowed to talk about it? Uh, yeah, I am. So I just um, got uh, accepted as the volunteer artist of, at residence at the Lake Padre Waterkeepers. And we're working on a like science-based coloring book for uh, the school year next year. I'm really excited about it. It's all about protecting the watershed at Ponderay. We've been kind of playing with the idea, throwing some of like Coeur d'Alene's water in there because there's not really a waterkeeper presence here. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm really excited about that. Other side projects I'm working on are other coloring books. And, and that connects with another passion, with your other pet project, yeah. which 
we'll bring our episode here full circle is really just the the myriad of sustainability yes. and, and you know part of the challenge of this podcast that will always be the case in every episode is trying to define what the hell sustainability even means right um you know we see it everywhere and everywhere we go these days there's always something green to look at uh, right. on marketing and there's right. always like you know sustainable living and hashtags right. everywhere and right. stuff like that and you know i'm kind of seeking to define where in society do we need to pay attention to right. things that are sustainable and, right. and what is just the fluff that we can ignore yeah um yeah. because we have to admit that a lot of stuff that we are told when it comes to uh organic stuff and green stuff as much as i hate to admit it isn't maybe what we think it is right. and so um this is all about kind of being more informed as right. people and right. um as uh, much of our government considers us as consumers yeah and that kind of thing so you're a, a brilliant mind when it comes to uh, well, you're a brilliant mind anyway, but when it comes to <laughs> mapping out, I think, connections within industries, yeah. um, you did a project on Patagonia. I did, yes, and it was um, eye-opening, really. Uh, that was really what showed me how bad the clothing industry is, I guess just in yeah. general, the textile industry. Um, so before we get in, and I want to get into your yeah. Patagonia specifically in just a sec, but let's talk about the clothing industry at sort of a base level Right, first. where it stands right now? Yeah, so okay. in your opinion... As someone who is sustainably minded, mm -hmm. as is, right. you look at the clothing industry and what's wrong with it? Well, you know, most people don't see anything wrong with it because we, there's no reason to. I mean, for my first introduction to the clothing industry was actually watching a documentary called The True Cost. And that, that was a couple years ago. And the True Cost. The True Cost. It's okay. a fantastic documentary. And then I started doing some research. And for me, I'm a very frugal person. And I just... I hate going to like outlet stores. I'm not a mall shopper. I'm, that's just not who I am. And about um, five years ago, my husband and I started practicing minimalism. And so minimalism really forces you to like be very conscious of what you're buying hmm. because you're you don't want to fill up your space. And we live in a shoebox, so we have to be really careful about what we bring into our house. And so um, when I was doing research for clothing, because I I work, my, my job requires I have like utility clothing basically. Yeah. I wanted something that would last and every time I would buy work leggings, they would fall apart within like a month and it used to drive me crazy because I was spending so much money. Yeah. And so I started looking and you know, when I was doing my research for my project, I started finding out that like in today's clothing industry, there's where there used to be four seasons of clothing, now we have 52 seasons of clothing. So it's basically companies are putting out new product every 52 single, seasons. 52 seasons of clothing a week. Yeah. So wait, so <laughs> yeah. there's 52 weeks in the year. I know. <laughs> yes. So you're putting so out... For, yeah, so for, wait a So, okay, you yeah. have to explain this because yes. I haven't heard this. Okay. Okay. So, um, so, okay, so let me rewind. The problem with our clothing today is... Way back when, clothing was utility. Today, it's right. like our plumage. We're like human birds. We, we communicate through our clothing. Yeah, it used to be a cent. It yes. was just for getting to work. And yes. Getting done what yeah. you need to get done. And, and then, yeah. yeah, you have your one pair of jeans and two flannels. Nowadays, it's fluffy. It is fluffy. Yeah. Um, as a female, I don't know about men's clothing, um, you go into any store and you notice that the, the textile is super flimsy. And it's actually designed yeah. like that. So clothes are actually like have that built in like fall apart in them. Uh, the planned obsolescence. It's yeah. definitely clothing. Well, I certainly feel like that as a man. I, I don't feel like I can find enough good quality. Right. 
clothes that won't break down in a matter yeah. of months. Yeah. It's, it is hard to find, I have and to admit. And that's planned. I mean, because if they're putting out, you know, every week, you know, there's some companies that are literally putting out 400 products a week new. So by the time that week is over, I mean, those products haven't sold. So you have not only, um, you know, a massive amount of new clothing that's ended up to the landfill because now it's, you know, obsolete. Right. But it's designed that way. So, you know, you're looking at an industry that's literally $2.4 trillion. That's how much it's worth. 2.4. So... Yeah. Let's touch on that then, actually. That brings me to a bigger question that yeah. I had for you. And again, we're going to get into your Patagonia thing oh, yeah, no. I, I, pretty I'm, soon. <laughs> yeah. There's some really, really interesting facts that I'm yeah. really excited to talk about on the on Patagonia front. But so, in your view, yeah. so far, you know how... How heavy does the clothing industry weigh in terms of the overall burden in becoming a sustainable society? It's huge. Um, so the problem with the clothing industry is if we can change the clothing industry, we can change the second largest polluting industry in the world. It, it is literally wow. the second most, next to oil. Um, in 2015, the carbon emissions from the textile so higher- industry was more than the maritime and international flights combined. Like, that's huge. So wow. where does dairy play into that? I'm not sure where dairy plays into it. I see. I guess. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Ex- yeah. It's, I thought dairy would be higher than clothes, but I guess not. Well, if you think about it, that's from like cradle to grave for clothing. It, it includes the growing, the resources, whether it be like plants. Or oh whatever. yeah. And then it goes into like, for example, one t-shirt. One t-shirt. It requires three years of drinking water to make that one t-shirt. So you're yeah. looking at like this huge industry um, that's worth trillions, and every single year this tr- trillion dollar industry is putting 80 billion pieces of clothing onto the market. Wow, that's insane! And if you think about it, why do we need 80 billion dollar or 80 billion pieces of clothing manufactured every year? I mean, our thrift stores are like burgeoning at the seams, and you know, a oh gosh, 12.7 million tons of clothing go to an American landfill every year. I mean, yeah. that's huge. You mentioned something really interesting, that the thrift stores are burgeoning at the seams. Right. You know, that's an important thing to bring up. It's yeah. like, you can think what you want about, you know, all these people who come out with mm-hmm. all these polls and right. stats and numbers right. and all this stuff. But if you just look around, right. you can see the impact that the clothing yeah. industry has had. It's, it's it, We do have this thrift store <clears throat> culture now. Yeah. And it's bizarre to me. It's bizarre to me that we have, you know, these places dedicated to excess goods and yet we're still putting more stuff onto the market and the sad thing is is only 10 percent of that stuff that gets donated gets sold so now you have like a third stream and that's the clothes that often end up you know they do some good work they send them to third world countries but a huge percentage of those go right to landfills in the third world countries that don't have the resources to actually manage them which wow is a huge problem so, and, and that's the thing, and that's why every time I drive by a garage sale or, you know, mm-hmm. a thrift store, I'm just like, oh my gosh, why? Why why do we keep, you know, putting this onto the market? It's interesting to me that we live in a society where we're provided with so much clothes, right. so so many options, right. and we, we eat it up. Clearly, there's a need, there's a demand for it. Yeah, because I mean, 52 so weeks a year, I mean, they... 52 they, seasons, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. You go to, yeah. you know, anytime you go into a mall in America, right. it's everybody is buying stuff. People are spending yeah. money there. And right. it's it, a lot of it is made overseas. Let's talk a bit about trade and just international impact. Even here in Coeur d'Alene, right. you walk into, you want to support a local business. Right. I won't name any names right now, but right. there's a lot of local, really cool t-shirt and clothing shops mm-hmm. in Coeur d'Alene that, that, you know, are really 
branding Coeur d'Alene as, you know, being a resort town, you know, we really want to make it, you know, fun and and people get involved. And that's, I love seeing that, but it always, there's a little part of me that kind of, you know, screams a bit on the inside when I look at that tag and it says made in China. Right. What kind of impact is that making really overall? Um, Well, you know, it's actually a huge impact. Um, And I'm going to preface everything with, it is the country of that manufacturing. They are responsible for making the laws for um, workers' rights and environmental concerns, etc. Um, so you'll often find that a lot of the cheaper clothing that we manufacture goes to the countries with the like the lowest, you know, amount of rules and regulations to follow. And um, you're dealing with a, a global scale of one massive amounts of you know pollution. I mean, it's huge. You're you're talking about like the dyes we use for our clothing are often uh, PVCs. Um, yeah. That gets in the water. Um, you know, a lot of the countries have way lower standards than we do for water quality when it comes to like outputting. Mm. I mean, gosh, there's certain areas of China that are so polluted. You know, you see pictures of them; it's just heartbreaking because yeah. people are raising their families in these areas. But you're also looking um, on a more global scale exploitation. Um, a lot of, of people who don't have any other options for work. So, you know, there's like the argument, well, oh, we're providing them jobs. And yes, we are. That's, you know, that's great. But at the same time, we're paying them pennies on the dollar. And they're working for companies that demand overtime, you know, 100, 100 hours of overtime. Um, they have no workers' rights. If they unionize, they get fired. If a woman gets pregnant, she gets fired. They have to put up with uh, sexual harassment. Um, I found a statistics where 20 to 60%, which is a pretty wide range of... Um, Production. 60, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wide. It kind of depends on the area. A lot of production is um, done by informal workers. Um, so these are people who are subcontracted, and it's like poor families who live like in the slums, and they're hand sewing goods on a subcontract with the company. Oh, so so I guess if they're subcontracted, that would mean that no there's oversight. no benefits, there's no oversight. Zero, zero oversight. And this is where a lot of companies get in trouble. Is they say, oh, we're contracting with this um, factory, and they have all these standards. But that company is subcontracted. Right. So, so let's say, for example, just to give the listeners an idea of some context here. Yeah. Say you you buy a shirt. It's made right. in China. Right. Um, or whatever country, and wherever the manufacturing process took place. Right. And wherever those workers are working. Right. Does the U.S. have anything to do with the quality of work um, in t- on a direct basis, or is that all up to the to the government at the originating country. It's most usually up to the government of the originating country. Yeah. So um, it just kind of depends. It depends. Yeah. And that's the problem with why it's such a huge industry is such a huge problem. It's because it's like the Wild West out there. Really. Yeah. Well, something I've always wondered. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you found any information on this, just out of curiosity. You see, you know, we say made in China, made in right. Taiwan, whatever it is. That's a pretty big country. If you wanted to research this. Right. And go, okay, I want to be a little more conscious. I don't right. I don't necessarily mind if it comes from another country. I just right. want to make sure that people aren't being abused. Right, right. Uh, the quality of life is fine. I right. think that's respectable enough Absolutely. in yeah. modern day world. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you find that information? Um, usually it's up to the parent company to list which factories are you know they're using. So you have to contact the company and see who they're contracting with. Um, like the t- like t-shirt company or yeah. The so say like you wanted like we'll just make a generic company. company Gilbert. Yeah, Gilbert Company. Yeah. Um, if they were responsible, they would list it on their website where they're contracting with, mm-hmm. um, and that's transparency. And in fact, there's a lot of transparency like laws and initiatives and human uh, human rights transparency stuff that's being put forward. You know, trying to encourage these companies like, hey, let us know. You know, we want to know where our clothing is made, and so. 
um, some of the big name brands actually are starting to list, you know, this is where our factory's at, you know, mm. and, and these are the initiatives that we've put in the factory to make sure that our workers are taken care of. You know, in the U.S., we like to show off a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, any opportunity we have to say, hey, look, I did this, <laughs> uh, we, t- we tend to do that here. And so we come up with logos and phrases and, right. and uh, you know, name recognition is everything here mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. You would think that, I don't mean to pick on someone, but right. I, I guess I've always been surprised that that these factories don't take this opportunity to right. really increase a name recognition yeah. and instead of just saying made in China right it could say made in China, but it could also say made at such and such right. production facilities right. in China. And it, you'd almost think that that would be, I mean, it certainly would be more transparent. Right, yeah. And I don't want to be, I could be conspiratorial about it right. and say, well, maybe they're hiding stuff. Right. And, and some of them, <laughs> unfortunately, of them are. are. Yeah. What kind of, did you see any sort of, tr- I mean, you probably saw a trend. Yeah. I think, you know, you're on to something. I think as companies start to understand that, like, especially our generation really is very conscientious of what we're buying, they will grab onto that. Because here's the thing, like, and you have to remember this about big companies, is they don't care about you as a person. Right. They don't. They care about what's going to make you buy something. It's that profit at yes. the end of the day. Yeah. So, they're doing you know, what they do naturally. Yes, they're being exactly. a business. Right. So that's the thing. Like companies like don't really have souls. Like some companies like really like, oh well this is our ethos. And at the end of the day they want to sell you a product. So if them being transparent is what's gonna sell you a product, they'll start to do it. And I actually think that, you know, ten years from now we will see what you were talking about is that transparency, especially if we start demanding it. Thanks again for listening to the show today. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. I wanted to take a quick break to give you an update on an event I'm organizing here in town. The community trash pickup originally scheduled for March 9th had to be postponed due to some really thick snow. I'm working on a new date for this, but in the meantime, make sure to find the Sustainable Culture Podcast on Facebook or Instagram for regular updates on the event. Now let's dive back into the conversation as Bree and I discuss what we can learn about sustainability from the clothing company Patagonia. You mentioned Yvonne Chouinard, and I'm glad yes. you bring this man up. Um, a dream come true for me would be to... I would love to have a cup of tea with this gentleman. I know. He sounds like such a fun guy, right? Oh, my gosh. Um, so brilliant. If you haven't looked up the man, Yvonne Chouinard, he's the founder of uh, the North... No, I'm sorry. Patagonia. Patagonia. I, I confuse him with his partner. Right. So he is the founder of Patagonia. He also uh, was uh, architect making a lot of uh, cli- you know, rock climbing tools. Yeah, he things like founded that. Black Diamond. Black Diamond. That's yeah, what it was. Yeah, that was his first company. And he has a, a quote that I think plays so well <laughs> into... Um, yeah, he does. He has a lot of great quotes. But yeah. one of his quotes that I love so much is, the more you know the less you need. Yes, I love that quote of his. How does yeah. that, how do you see that coming out in the philosophy of what you researched about Patagonia? Uh, you know, Patagonia is interesting because, you know, for a, the traditional, of course, we go back to the 52 seasons a year, yeah. Patagonia does the exact opposite. In fact, they are so the exact opposite, it's mind-blowing. They have their solid set of um, products that they provide, but they're not trying to sell you stuff. In fact, he has another quote. His <laughs> quote was, I don't give a shit how much money we make. And I love that. Oh. Um, so he put like profit at like the very, very bottom. Um, his whole like idea of Patagonia was just, he really just wanted good clothing for when he was outdoors, right. which was his big thing. And so Patagonia has this closed loop economy of how they manufacture. So they have their solid set of things. And when those things start to wear out, they'll usually repair it for free or a small fee. When the thing is like beyond wear, 
they actually provide places where you can take it for them to recycle it or dispose of it in a, you know, responsible manner. So his idea of, you know, you as a consumer and we as a company are both mutually responsible for this product is so beyond opposite of, you know, the other ethos of, you know, clothing where it's like, well, that's yours now, you know, good luck disposing of it, Um, which again, we have this unprecedented amount of clothing going to the landfill every year. Again, it comes back to marketing. If they want to market to a more conscientious generation, they have to step up to the plate. Yeah. And I mean, beyond clothing, you start seeing this with a lot of the bigger productions of um, packaging. Mm. There's a lot of initiatives going where like, why is the consumer taking care of your waste? Why are we paying? Why are the taxpayers paying for recycling? Mm-hmm. Why are we doing that? You guys should be doing that. You guys started it. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's completely different. But Patagonia really just, you know, embraced that and said, yeah, you know, if we're going to be making this stuff, you know, we need to be responsible for it. And I think that's great. And, you know, it's not just at the end life. They're responsible for that product from the very beginning. They only source organic cotton. And I think that's huge because when I was doing my research and looking at like cotton, cotton is one of the most polluting crops in the world. You know, I, I remember you saying this on your original project yeah. when, you, when you were doing your presentation. And I was actually kind of surprised to hear that. And it surprised me that I was surprised. Yeah. Because if you just think about it, I mean, cotton is everywhere. Yeah. It's, it makes so many things. And if you remember what we were talking about earlier and how there's this international thing. Right. And, and there's so many clothing manufacturing plants that are outside of the U.S. Right. And it produces all these emissions overseas. And on top of that, it gets on a boat and comes over yeah. here and all the other, you know, shipping. Right. Things like that. That's incredible when you yeah. put that all together. So what are some other ways they kind of close that loop? Um, well, one of the, the one of the closed loops that we were dealing with um, was the workers' rights. Um, they closed the loop of that transparency issue by listing every single factory that they, you know, use on their website. And I actually screenshotted it. It's huge. It's a huge list. Um, but not only that, they make sure that those... Um, you know, manufacturers do not subcontract. If they find out they're subcontracting, they terminate that. But they go a step further. Not only do they, you know, acknowledge that the government is responsible for the laws for environmental protection and workers' rights, but they have their own set of laws, too, that these factories have to follow. Oh. Um, so they take it to the next level to make sure. There's probably listeners going, well, hey, 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 wait a second. Yeah. Patagonia still says made in China. And yes. I have to admit, I saw that one time yeah. um, when I was shopping for clothes. Right. Uh, in a in a Patagonia store, right? And I was actually disheartened when I saw Made in China on the yeah. thing, but I didn't know any bit. I didn't right. know what their processes were like. So rest easy, guys. Yeah, Patagonia does yeah. ship overseas still, which you could argue is its own environmental thing, yeah. and certainly it's a different argument. Yeah, uh, in terms of fossil fuels, that, right. that kind of thing. But at least in terms of sustainability, I would say that they're doing a hell of a job yeah. in terms of focusing on the quality of life of people yeah. and and closing that waste loop yeah. of it. Um, they're fantastic about that. Heck, if you guys are more curious, they have literally like, it's like a 120 page sustainability report that they release every single year. Oh my gosh. About everything they've done that year. And they are about as transparent as transparent companies, you know, yeah. can be. But yeah, you have that closed loop. But, you know, they're not only sourcing, you know, responsible labor, but they're, resp- they're sourcing responsible, even like animal products. Um, they do have, they use wool and they use down in a lot of their um, outdoor wear. Mm. They only um, source humanely raised wool from a small farm or small farms, family farms. And the thing I love about Patagonia is like, so down is one of those like really controversial things because you have to pluck a goose to, you know, get the feathers. They only use recycled down. So, I mean, yeah, at one point, you know, an animal did have to die for this, 
but not another one had to die. Right. So it, interesting. Is all of their down sourced like that that you know of? Um, from what I could find, everything, yeah, is completely recycled. They have so a- so it seems like Patagonia is a healthy discussion topic in a lot of ways. That's why mm-hmm. I wanted you to talk a bit about your research yeah. with this, even though this was a class project originally. Right. But I, I found it so fascinating for a lot of reasons, obviously. But one of those being that Patagonia is this example, in my opinion, of companies that show what it's like for companies to sort of set a precedent and let the people decide yeah. what they want. Yeah. You know, they're not 100% zero. They're not a right. zero waste company. And, they're and not- they'll freely admit that. They're like, we are working on it. But you want to know what's really cool about Patagonia is they're not just like, ooh, this is our like intellectual property. They have a mentoring program to go to other companies and say like, hey, this is what we did. Would you like some help? Yeah. Which I think is great. You know, there's always naysayers for whatever. Oh. You know, I, I see a lot of people who give a lot of hard time and, and flack to a lot of the people who get really into recycling or try and reduce waste or try and close a loop here or there or whatever. And to me, um, companies like Patagonia and focusing and rethinking the way that we purchase clothes and the things that we think about when we're looking for clothes, uh, like where it was sourced and things like that. It just seems like we can all benefit as a species if we just think about it. We we don't have to completely drastically change our way of life Mm -mm. if we don't want to. Right. And that's part of this whole idea, you know, we talk about freedom of thought and choice and all that. And I I think that's wonderful. But if we just educate others and ourselves enough about the well-being of others who are making these clothes, for example. Yeah. You know, that's a big thing we focus on. And that's something you see in coffee a lot, which we'll talk about another day. But Well, you hit a point. I mean, it's not just like thought about the workers. It's, you know, care about the soil in which it was grown. Because everything on the planet depends on soil health. Mm. And again, go back to like cotton being, you know, 60% of the world's pesticides. And, you know, was it 6.8% of the world's herbicides directly into the ground ground soil where this cotton's being grown? Huge. So yeah. Patagonia is looking at, like, the care of the soil, the care of the animals, the care of the plants, the care of the people, even the care of their own employees. Um, they have one of the best maternity programs out there. They have a 95%, you know, work return rate because they provide childcare for mm-hmm. mothers at their, I think, Nevada location. Um, wow. The other thing, too, is, is they're looking out for the consumer. They understand that if we want to, like, reduce consumption of this fast fashion... You have to make it so that, you know, obviously their products are more expensive. I mean, that's the price you pay for, you know, this. But they're like, okay, if we want to reduce consumption, we have to make it more affordable for the people who maybe can't afford. Mm. So they actually have an entire other division dedicated to their second handware. Where you can go, they'll refurbish it, and they have it on their website. You can go buy completely refurbished Patagonia wear for like half off. That's rad. And, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not even kidding you, um, when this is completely a little off to the side, but when I was looking at redoing my life, if you will, 75% of my wardrobe is thrifted. Yeah. And it's high quality stuff. You know, there's thread up online where I get a lot of my workwear, like... You know, this is gonna. What was your What was your best thrift store find um, to date? Actually, my best thrift store find was a two hundred and fifty dollar leather jacket. Uh, Josh found a seven hundred and fifty dollar shots jacket at a thrift store. Wow, it was at an antique store. Um, I have found Lululemon leggings that you know I wear for like literally forty dollars. Yeah, brand new. Brand new. Um, I you know. You can, I've seen Columbia. We've gotten some of Josh's Columbia stuff. And do you spend store. tons of time shopping at thrift stores? No. In fact, since I'm an online girl, I just go to the online thrift stores. I maybe buy clothes twice a year. And no. you contributed nothing to an initial production. Exactly. 
I mean, I rescued or, it from a landfill. And right. it's amazing to me because that website updates every single day with thousands of new products. And that goes yeah. back to our thrift stores are exploding. Right. And you don't have to spend a lot of money for high-quality yeah. stuff. Why would you? I think if more people realized exactly how much excess we had... Yeah. One and and how their clothing was produced. I don't think people would. I think people would think twice about you know buying new stuff, and realizing how much better of a deal you're getting a secondhand name brand product. Um, well, I know a couple people love to go to outlet stores, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, well, the, the the discount stores saying, "Oh, look, I scored this really great designer deal. It's brand new." So actually, a lot of those designer deals was actually they're not brand new. Uh, what those outlet stores do is they go to the designer and say, "Hey." Can we slap your name on this product that we made in our own factory out of cheaper goods? Mm-hmm. So there's a ruse there, and that's silly. Yeah. <laughs> so the second hand, I I'm, I am a huge proponent of the second hand. I think it's the probably as far as sustainable clothing goes, where we're at right now. That's really where we got to be looking at. We got to start with reusing. Reusing, and that's keep it the closed loop, the reuse. And if you absolutely must have something brand new. I mean, do your research. If, you know, for businesses around Coeur d'Alene, if they want to be more sustainable, follow Patagonia. Figure out where you're sourcing. Mm-hmm. Use organic cotton. Use hemp. Use linen. Uh, the flaxseed is one of the strongest uh, textiles we have. Anything that's really a, a plant, if you will, is better. And I want to touch on this real quick is a huge percentage of our clothing today is polyester, which is a plastic. Mm-hmm. So when you throw away clothing in a landfill, that's plastic. It takes forever to, you know, decompose if it ever does. Wow. And you're looking at these tiny, tiny fibers, um, plastic fibers being spun into threads. So when you wash them, they're releasing tons and tons and tons of microplastics into the water, which is getting into the microplankton and zooplankton, which is getting into fish. Which, you know, they recently you know, actually, I, I yeah. didn't realize it was connected to clothing. Yeah. That makes huge. sense because last year, well, uh, and sometime in 2018, I want to say, they, they just concluded this study that they were doing in Antarctica and they found yes. microplastics as far as Antarctica. It's everywhere. It's uh, yeah. everywhere and the thing that scientists are worried about right now mm-hmm. not to be doom and gloom but it's right. just what they're concerned about is a better word mm-hmm. is just that they don't know yeah. how that's impacting the environment right now. They, don't. It, they do believe that it's correlated to some negative results. Yeah. But they don't know how yet, and right. what they're scared about is that they're... I say scared, again, right. I don't want to use the wrong verbs. Yeah. What they're concerned about, beca- for lack of knowing uh-huh. any information on it, is just that. Just that. We are not able to study quickly enough right. to catch up with the technology yes. and the impact it's making on the Earth. One of their big concerns when I was doing my research on microplastics for my other project was is we know that they act as sponges for uh, toxic waste. And so, you know, we're not sure at what rate these little microplastics are, you know, releasing the toxins that they, you know, absorb. Hmm. We know that they're in the food we eat. Uh, The U.S. is one of the most uh, polluted for drinking water. You're drinking microplastics. We don't know what that effect is on us. Right. So when we talk about, you know, clothing, the clothing industry being the second most polluting industry... That's part of it. It's the the death of the clothing is also extremely polluting. It's just as polluting as the birth of the clothing. Yeah. Which is why I'm a huge proponent of reuse. And reuse and do as much um, natural fibers as you can. Right. So, yeah, it's a huge problem. Any last recommendations um, for uh, shopping wisely? Shopping wisely, uh, of course, just like we were talking about, uh, thrift stores um, is my favorite. My, my big thing for saving money personally is if I see something I like, I have the three-day rule. If I still want it after three days, I'll get it. And usually I don't ever want it. Mm-hmm. So 
I'm at the point now, this is not like, this is not a humble brag, where we have tailored down our spending to the point where my clothes fit in a small three-drawer nightstand dresser and a foot closet space. That's all my clothing. Wow. Um, and yeah, we didn't even yeah. get into your minimalism. We might have to invite you back oh, to talk yeah, about that. Yeah, um, that's a huge part of our life. But that's the same thing for my husband Josh's clothing. Right. One small three-drawer nightstand dresser and about a foot of closet space. And that's it. Because when it comes down to it, one, we really don't need a lot of clothing. I mean, that's a, a lie that we've been sold. And two, we have so much excess that you can practically dress yourself for free now. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I, and I'm sure you probably agree, that at the end of the day, if people see you wearing the same shirt that you wore like yeah. three days ago... Well, I went to a charter school. Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, you, I wore a uniform every day, so... Nobody I, cares. <laughs> no one's going to be like, dude, did you wash that? <laughs> Noticed you're wearing that the other day. I know. It's so bizarre to me. Not a lot of variety there, dude. <laughs> and so no. I think it's just important to change these social, these social stigmas, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think that'll happen as more people are aware of, you know, these industries. I'm, I, like I said, I think if people really knew what was going on behind the scenes, it wouldn't even be a, I need to think about this more. It's yeah. more of a like, yeah, that really doesn't make sense. Why are we doing that? I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of where I'm at with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just consider. Yeah, absolutely. Just consider. I think the more you consider, the more enriched your life becomes. And it's less about, I need this, I need to buy this. It's more of like, what can I do? What can I explore? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the dichotomy of where we're at in society. is buying to fill the need when in fact we should be playing instead of buying. How fortunate for us that we live in a day and age where, with a tiny shift in perspective, we can make real positive change for others while buying things for ourselves. And while going to thrift stores, reusing fabrics, and shopping with companies like Patagonia really do make positive impacts, the real change begins with us and how we consider others in the process. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what flag defines us, it doesn't matter what borders separate us, and it definitely doesn't matter what color our skin happens to be. We all have the same needs, more or less, and therefore have a responsibility to protect those needs for one another. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. If you liked what you heard, like the episode and share with your friends. You can find the Sustainable Culture Podcast on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Sustainable Culture Podcast. Join me next week when we discuss how fostering innovation in your community can create thriving and prosperous societies for years to come. I'm Josh McLaughlin. We'll see you next time.